Isaiah 29, verses uh, 9 through 16. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk and not with, but not with wine. They stagger but not with strong drink. The Lord has poured over poured over you a spirit of deep sleep, and has shut your eyes. He has shut your eyes, the prophet. He has covered your head to see it. The entire vision will be will read to you like the words of the sealed book, which when they gave it to gave it to the one who is who is literate, saying, Please read this, you will say, I cannot read for it is sealed. The book will be given to the one who is literate, saying, Please read. Please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. The Lord, the Lord said, because, the people, because this people draw near with their words, and honor me with their lips, I will remove their hearts far from me. Their reverence for me consists of tradition, tradition learned by word. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with his people, wondrously marvelously. The wisdom of their wise, will, of wise men will perish, and discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and, the, and whose deeds are done in darkness. And those who, and they say, who see this, or who know this, turn your things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? The one, the one that made is, that made is what one would say is made. He did not, he did not make it. Or what is formed, say to him who is what is formed. He has no understanding. I think you're seeing here some of the reasons for the judgment God will bring on Judah. In nine through twelve, what do you see? They're blind. Why? Because the Lord has made them that way. Why has the Lord made them that way? Yeah. It's kind of like if you refuse to listen today, the Lord will make you unable to hear tomorrow. If you don't see what's there today, the Lord will blind you tomorrow. They've um, not um, opened their heart they, they, really what's happened is exactly what God said would happen back in Isaiah 6. The message of the truth has caused them to be blinded and hardened. Because they did not want to hear. They did not have a soft attitude toward the Lord. It's kind of Ahab who hated Micaiah because, well, he told, told him the truth. And so God sent a deceiving spirit to deceive him. When we refuse to open our heart to the truth, then God will shut the book. And uh, that's what's happening in 9 through 12. They're blind. They, they can't see. They don't have comprehension of God, His will, and His ways. And then in 13 and 14, what do you see as their problem? Yes. They speak well of God. They go through uh, fine worship routines. But how deep do that, does that go? Yeah. It's just reverence based on tradition learned by rote. It's not from the heart. It's mechanical. You ever sung songs and you had no idea what you sang? Doesn't mean anything to you? Predict of the Lord's Supper and you just ate some crackers and some great drank some grape juice, but it wasn't didn't you know, wasn't worship from your heart. I mean, that's what you see here. Is they they these people were very rebellious and disobedient, but did not mean that they were not worshiping. You couldn't say these type of people weren't going to church. They were going to church. And they were doing it all, getting all those sacrifices in, all those feast days in. But it was just the routine. It was the mechanical. Um, they were not discerning. They did not. Uh, they they trust in human wisdom, their own understanding, not in God's revealed word. Or listening to the Lord. Comments and questions through verse 14. Can you explain 11 and 12 again? Well, I think he's saying that they just don't get the Lord's message. They're blinded. And he says, you know, for some it's going to be like the book is sealed. So you can't read it because it's sealed. For others it's like, well... I can't read it because I can't read. I think the point is, they don't see God's message. They don't understand it. They're blinded to it. It's just various ways of saying, they don't, they don't comprehend God's, God's message. They, they've blinded themselves. God has blinded them and they are, it's like a sealed book to them. 
is he speaking to different classes of people there? Maybe, but I'm not sure what to say with that. I think there may just be various ways of saying one way or the other, they don't get it. Um, whatever I, what I was thinking of as you were, as you were reading this scripture, scripture as you were explaining it, especially in verses uh, 9, 10, 11, and 12, about how God is blessing these people with these gifts. And they're not using them, not only that, using them, not using them for, for His glory. God takes them away. And the same thing in our lives. If we don't use what we've been given for the glory of God and use them for what He would have us, what we've been given them for, then God can very easily take them away. And it's very applicable in our lives to never take the things that God has given us for granted. I think that's exactly right. You know, when we don't love the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2, then God will just send the deluding influence to believe what's false. We have to have a very receptive, moldable spirit to receive His will into our hearts. And then He'll open our minds to understand more. If we don't receive what what we have been given, He'll take that even away. Other thoughts? It's really a matter of what organ are they looking for. You know, they're looking. You know, they're they're doing what God told them to do. Uh, but they can't see because they don't look with their heart. Good point. It's very superficial. So how do we ensure we're seeing with our heart? Because even these people were evidently deceived to some extent thinking thinking that they were worshiping God a good question I mean I think it all comes back to our attitude toward God you know do we love him do we want his will you know I mean how do we take the uh, Isaiah who comes telling us the revelation Do, do we sort of resent it do we sort of try to you know, resist it. Are we that? Are we humble and teachable? And do we love God? I mean, if you love God, then what He says you'll want. If you don't love God, you'll try to deceive yourself into thinking you're serving Him when you're not. Other thoughts through fourteen on any of this? JD. What does it mean when? Of end of 13, the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And that's translated a little bit differently in the New Testament. And it's translated differently in the New American Standard. It's a little bit hard to translate. I like the New American Standard. I think it's right. I'm not sure. It's their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. To me, that gives the idea all the worship things they're doing is just sort of mechanically repeating the tradition that they've been trained to do, but not to really, you know, it, it does, it's not a part of their heart, it's more a part of their, you know, habit. If that is the right thing, I think it becomes kind of the danger of like the second generation Christian who knows what to do. You know, he knows the order. You know, he knows you sing the songs. He knows you pray the prayers. He knows you do the Lord's Supper. He knows you do the baptism. He knows you do, you know, and you, he knows how to do it. You know, he knows he knows all that. And so he, he goes through it. He does it. But, but it's not anything that impacts him particularly. It's just, you know, it's just what you do. I mean, you get up, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair, you, you know, you whatever. So you just kind of go through that. And, and, uh, I mentioned the other day, but I think this is significant. I remember hearing several years ago about a, uh, and I, I don't, not necessarily, I don't know enough about the situation to necessarily criticize it strongly. I just think this is so typical of the kinds of things we could think. I knew of a situation where there was a church, I forget even the whole circumstance of this, but it was like Super Bowl Sunday night. And they wanted to get done with the service really quickly. And so like, they did first and last verses of short songs. You know, and they instructed whoever was preaching that they needed to do a really short lesson. And You know, they did all the things. 
it, it's kind of it's just kind of funny how we are with that. You know, well, okay, what's the minimum that we can do and still get it in? We've still done what we're supposed to do. Now, I don't know about the whole circumstance of that, but I think we're a lot like that sometimes. Is that that we know? Okay, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. But but how can we do it the most painlessly as possible? You know, how can we get through it? So so you see, I mean, I, I, it amazes me sometimes when when I see say say people in churches that, that there's the opportunity for say extra studies. You know, you're, you're planning on having a gospel meeting. Well, maybe we'll have morning service. Well, I don't know if we want to have morning service or not. That's a lot, you know. Uh, well, uh, it, it, because, or, or just whatever, because, or maybe a long sermon. Well, that's it's pretty long. You know, the, the, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure or whatever, you know. We say as long as we're not at the ball game uh, or at a movie theater or whatever. Uh, and, and all that. It, it, it's like, you know, well, I, it, it, if, if it goes long or we have more, then I'll have to do it. You know, I'll have to be there. You know, it's just that kind of that mechanical obligation. We know, you know, the doors are open, I gotta go. But if we don't open the doors as often, then I'll be okay. You know, it'll be a lot easier. Uh, at any rate, I think that is the wrong spirit. You know, it's kind of the hireling spirit, you know, where... And there's really no joy in it. You know, I don't want to worship. I hate doing it, but I will. You know, because uh, I got to. And when when all of our service to God just becomes that mechanical, you know, get it done, punch the clock. Wow, how empty. How, how unconnected with the Lord that is. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make ourselves do the right things. We ought to. But it needs to become to us a reflection of our love for God. And not just a mechanical, you know, checking of the check marks. Comments and questions? Yeah, sort of like... Is it... I saw Emily's and I didn't see yours. So, so I would maybe say the, the idea here is the fear of me is merely a commandment taught by men, and that sort of idea. That it's, it's all, that's all it, it is. Yes. It's taught. The fear is taught, but it's not felt. It's not. Yes. Okay. There's no fear. It's not feared. It's just you know mechanically, you know, observe Emily. It seems like a lot of people kind of think of. God in the Old Testament, and we had all these rules and regulations, but well, now in the New Testament, we have it's different. We have more of a religion of the heart, and the mind of your heart is important now. But it's kind of seems to reinforce it. It was never different. God's never changed. It's always been the heart that's been important, no matter what. Yeah, like read Deuteronomy. <laughs> you know, wow, probably as much about the heart in Deuteronomy as nearly any passage in the New Testament. And certainly, I think that's exactly right, Shane. <laughs> And folks, you know what I'm saying? Since when has worship been our, been focused around us? Since when are we, are we, what matters in our worship? Why are we so self-focused? We're coming to worship God and to think of Him, not think about anyone's symbol or whatever. We're here to worship God, not to worry about our own timescale. Sure, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? In 15 and 16, it's a little different problem. Another reason for the judgment. What were they? Well, what were they? I guess trying to do. Hide what? That's uh, probably not going to be very successful. <laughs> but apparently, I'm wondering if they're thinking about their negotiations with Egypt and things like that. All these um, really distrustful things they were doing, they didn't think the Lord noticed. They didn't think he could see them. Are we ever like that? I mean, the thing that, that impresses me every once in a while is what an extreme uh, length we'll go to to make sure that nobody finds out something we're doing that's wrong. Or at least no Christian body finds out. Why do we care that much about that? 
it almost seems to me like we think if we haven't gotten caught it wasn't wrong if we haven't gotten caught the Lord doesn't know I don't think we'd ever say it that way. I mean, I don't think we'd consciously just say, well, I just don't believe the Lord can, can see me, you know, there. But, but our extreme efforts to hide, I think somehow or other we almost feel justified. I think they were doing that. And he says, you guys need to realize who I am. You know, uh, they were making their maker impotent, and, you know, lacking wisdom and, and, and vision. Think about who God is. You'll never hide anything from Him. That's the problem, I think, is we don't think about who God is. We don't think about God. So if we don't think about God, then we're worried about those around us. Yes. Good point. Yes. And so the focus becomes on how to get people to be convinced we're doing okay. Other comments and thoughts through 16. 17 to 24. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? And that day the deaf the death shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will hallow my name, and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in the Spirit will come to understanding, and those who complain will run doctrine. So what you see is, again, the aftermath of God's punishment that the result will be a transformation, a time of blessing again. Isaiah doesn't always, you know, preach the same point. He goes on to give hope for the future where Lebanon would be turned into a fertile field, a fertile field of forest. A physical way of saying what he says in 18 and 19, you've got how they're deaf and blind, but what's going to happen? They're going to see and hear. You know, they're going to be sensitive to the Lord's will again. Look back at 29.11 or 29.10, but now they're going to actually receive, they're going to be receptive to God's word. And this revival would center on which people, verse 19? Yes, the humble ones are the ones who would be receptive, are the ones who would listen, are the ones who would have their heart responsive to the Lord. Those are the ones that really uh, are keenly uh, aware of God's uh, word and God's will. And so this revival, this this opening of their mind and, and sight and hearing are these, these humble people that turn to the Lord. The, verse 20 and 21, the, the wicked, the ruthless, uh, the the deceitful, they're cut off. They come to an end. They're destroyed. This this new time of blessing and revival and new hope is the needy, the humble, the pure, the innocent, the sincere that turn back to God. Comments and questions through twenty one. So there's a refining taking place, and the emphasis is on the the part that's left. Yes, this would be the remnant. That is blessed. There's a connection between um, verses, sorry, I'm trying to talk about it. Between verses uh, 
17 18 and 19 and like Matthew 11 4 through 6 where Jesus says the blind see the lame walk the deaf hear and more importantly the, the poor are the gospel preached to which is really the emphasis of the verses in Isaiah it's not a literal seeing hearing as much as it is a understanding of God's word absolutely I think when Jesus answered the messengers John sent are you the coming one he says just tell them the facts of what you've seen that John will recognize as what Isaiah said in various passages that the Messiah would do I think this, this it might, that might be a good passage even to help us realize that passages like this are primarily focusing on the time of Christ this is primarily the opening of the eyes and the blessing that comes to the Lord but yeah, good, good, good text. Other thoughts through twenty-one. Shane. Um. So yeah, maybe you said this and I missed it. But uh, does it have a specific time that it's talking about? I think primarily the time of Christ. Not judgment day, but the time of Christ. Comes. Yes, not judgment day. No, I think not. I think uh, this is this is the blessings after God purges and purifies the, the remnant that uh, God blesses through his son <coughs> um, so you know, said, uh, after Jesus is resurrected he says uh, or he says these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you and all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the songs must be fulfilled and then in verse 45 of Luke 24 he says, or it says, then he opened their minds to the scriptures. And you know, I don't think of passages like this, but uh, we just be in a totally different light after Jesus was Absolutely. And you see in that, that, well, in the passage you looked at, in uh, Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There is so much more about Jesus in the Old Testament than what we've ever thought about. The more you study, the more incredible that is. Uh, wow. It's everywhere. Uh, I was just looking through some notes uh, the other day and ran across some notes that I'd taken from a, a lesson from someone on some of the parallels. And I thought about this before we drew out a couple that I had forgotten. Uh, parallels between Jesus and Elisha, of which there are many. I think Elisha is a very great type of Jesus. But wow, everywhere you look in the Old Testament, you have references to Jesus. Uh, just wow, almost every event every institution, virtually every man of God, you know, and all these prophecies, and all the promises, and, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to open a page of the Old Testament and not find some reference to the work of Jesus. It's really an amazing thing. It's a powerful thing. Um, and, and, and many of those things are not oracular. You know, the oracle who would just sort of give a random prediction. These are things deeply imprinted on the very structure and fabric of what God was doing in the Old Testament, not just a superimposed little detail. And, and what you see in that then is how in the world could human beings have, have constructed a document that that deeply reflects something that was to come in Jesus. We are, when we look at fulfilled prophecy, I think we need to see something more deep than, hey, Micah 5 said he'd be born in Bethlehem, and lo and behold, he's born in Bethlehem. I think that's impressive. But I think it's impressive to realize it's not just little details. It's the whole picture. It's everything all the way down reflects what was coming. How did they know? And how did they know more than just, you know, a few isolated coincidences? Other thoughts through 21? We're spending three days on half the book of Isaiah, so Jesus must have talked to him for about three weeks. Had <laughs> <laughs> 40 days, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah. I'm sure he didn't exhaust that. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I mean, what is it Tommy Peeler says? Any list of messianic prophecies and passages you construct from the Old Testament is too small if it doesn't include every passage. The whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament, okay. Yeah. See, that's about right, isn't it? Okay, Phil Robertson. He just added the southern drawl to it. All of you relatives of Tommy who are here can go back and report that. It was all what J.D. said. And so, verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham. You know, here's the blessing. Jacob shall not now be ashamed. You know, he will... He will sanctify my name. They'll sanctify the Holy One. They'll stand in awe. They are transformed. You see, they really respect God now. They have a new sensitivity to the Lord and His Word and His will. Those who err in mind will know the truth. Those who criticize will accept instruction. They are now sensitive. They're humble. They, they now have the respect for God. This is, this is the blessings God gives for this purified remnant. This, this transformed people. So, 17 to 24, the great redemption God will bring after the judgments of 1 to 16. Comments and questions? Shane. Uh, John 11, 4 through 6, I think. Matthew 11. <laughs> Matthew 11, sorry. Matthew 11. Anything else? These last couple of verses are the answer to the questions that we had earlier uh, about uh, them worshiping God with rope. And when you look at the last couple of verses, well, what's the difference? Well, they're going to sanctify God. They're going to hold Him in esteem in their person. Uh, and, and so it is it is our relationship with God that makes the difference. And that's what He desires of us. He wants our heart. He wants us to love Him. Uh, he wants us to know Him. Uh, because, interestingly enough, that's what he, what he wants. I mean, he, he wants us to recognize who he is, and he wants to be loved by us, he wants us to serve him, and he wants a relationship with us. Amen. Logan. So, verse 24, at the end of it, when it says, those who criticize and accept instruction, does that mean, is that a prophecy of the Jerusalem, like the, of the faithful remnant of Israel from Jerusalem? Yeah, I mean, I think he's saying that the remnant that's blessed in Christ will now be receptive and sensitive to God's word, not critics of it. Other thoughts? Alright, chapter 30 is another one of my favorite chapters. Uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk down to Egypt, and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zion, Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Haines. They were all ashamed of the people who could not benefit them, or be helped or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came a lioness and a lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches on, they will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys, and their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people who shall not profit. But the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab him Shebet. Now go, write it down before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever. Woe to the rebellious children who execute a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, who proceed down to Egypt, without consulting me. So what's their problem? <coughs> Rely on themselves, not trusting in God. Um, 
you know anybody in the Old Testament that made mistakes when they failed to uh, inquire of the Lord before they acted? Joshua. Joshua in Joshua 9, of all people, didn't ask the Lord in connection with what? The Gibeonites. Absolutely. And uh, that was a terrible mistake. I, I think about a statement in First Chronicles ten fourteen in connection with Saul, saying, uh, talking about the trespass of the Lord, and he did not inquire of the Lord. First Chronicles ten fourteen, uh, the first part. Of it. I mean, his problem was he says he inquired of the witch of Endor. He didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't consult the Lord. He didn't listen to the Lord. When we try to solve our problems without consulting the Lord, that just creates more problems. So what was their um, independent determination to do here in this chapter? Alliance with Exactly. Proceed down to Egypt, take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now, do you remember some passages like 25 4, where God is the shade from the heat? Or clear back in Isaiah 4 and verse 6, where God would be the shade from the heat? Now they want to take refuge in the shadow of Egypt. They're trying to to substitute Egypt for what God had wanted to be for them. When they they talk about the shadow of Egypt that they want to shade them, that's blasphemy. God was their shade. They want Egypt to be their shade. Kind of ridiculous anyway. Can you think of any good reasons for Israel not to trust in Egypt? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'd be holding a grudge that's <laughs> the first few chapters of Exodus <laughs> oh, isn't it amazing how foolish we are when we don't listen to the Lord how stupid we do things I mean you can go back to Deuteronomy 17 just a great passage for a lot of purposes but the uh, passage about what the king should do in Deuteronomy 17 uh, he shall not multiply horses for himself nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses that's Deuteronomy 17 16 God has specifically said specifically said not to go back to Egypt and trust in Egypt now can you see a reason why Egypt would want Judah to do this absolutely always nice to have another roadblock before the Assyrians come invade you plus absolutely the, uh, they, they managed to work this scheme to where they got all the, the you know payment for making the treaty you know Egypt was big brother you know and so Judah needed Egypt so Judah would send all this stuff to Egypt in return for Egypt's promises to come and defend them if they were ever attacked by the Assyrians. And actually here it looks to me like Isaiah sees in verse 4 the ambassadors actually coming there. You know, and, and, and seeking help. He says you'll be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them. It won't do any good. He actually sees, you know, the 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 animals in verse six carrying all the stuff, all the loot they're sending to Egypt in exchange for making this treaty, and they have to go through this wilderness, this desert area where there's a lioness, lion, viper, flying serpent, and all that kind of stuff, and and carrying all this stuff down. I mean, the people probably, you know, all in a, a you know anxiety trying to hear what, what's, what's the status of the negotiations. You know, how are the ambassadors doing? And he's like, don't worry about the ambassadors. What about these poor animals that are having to take all this stuff down through the, the wilderness? That's what you really ought to feel sorry for. Even to a people who cannot profit them, the end of verse 6, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, <laughs> therefore I've called her, well, whatever Matt said, uh, in New American Standard, Rahab, who's been exterminated, but I really prefer a kind of a more um, loose translation, I think gives the idea, Therefore I've called her dragon do nothing. Now Rahab was the idea of a dragon, a monster. 
man who could not profit it. And what he's saying is, you know, you're doing all this stuff. Egypt's not going to do a thing. Egypt's not going to help you any. Just kind of an old, you know, grandmother dragon that can't get off her duff. You know, I mean, and that's what happened every single time. I don't care who, what era you talk about, whether you talk about the Assyrian threat or later the Babylonian threat, they constantly made those alliances with Egypt. And Egypt never did one thing. Egypt never came out. They never defended them. They never protected them. And Isaiah said, it's not going to work. That's exactly what's going to happen. They're not going to come. You write this down. It'll be a witness forever. I said it. You know, this was God's message. You'll know that I was speaking the message of God when you've got it written down. You go back and look. It's going to happen just like I said it would. I'm not so sure how stupid and precarious this whole treaty is. You know, I mean, you're, you're having to send, you're having to trust it. Why even you're trusting this? To even make the treaty, you're having to send the treasure on these uh, donkeys' backs, and they're going through a, a land where they could die or get hit by snakes. You know, I mean, there's just nothing safe or smart about any of this. You know, and that's shown even here in the in the making of it with giving the treasure to them. Yeah, absolutely. And how would you enforce it? You know, the Assyrians are attacking, come protect us, or we'll come down and beat you up. <laughs> you know, what, what's, your, what's your defense? Why would the Egyptians want to risk themselves to help? They got the loot. <laughs> you know, I that's the thing. We are so foolish when we make these covenants with the world. You know, thinking that we could trust the world. Worldly people are only out for themselves. They get what they want, that's all they care about. Trust the Lord. We see a similarity here between, between our day. Uh, they, they realized that they needed to put trust in something. They realized that, that they weren't self-sufficient, but they looked to the wrong thing. So many people are like that. Nobody thinks they're, they're perfect. Nobody thinks, everybody knows they have problems. They look in so many different other directions. Self-help books and all those other whatnots, but they don't look to God. Just like you know, uh, the people of Judah knew they needed help, they knew they couldn't stand on their own, but they looked to the wrong source, they looked to Egypt instead of God. Absolutely. We trust worldly wisdom, we trust the world solutions, worldly allies, and yeah, we don't even want to listen to God. Well, but, but you know, they know, they, they, they're, they're, they're good, they're experts in their field. Yeah, right. Uh, as if the Lord doesn't know much? <laughs> Shame. Um, I don't know, let's just pretend that even if Egypt had, was going to help them out, use an example, you guys here, let's say you had a choice between a Lamborghini and a Pinto, and here Israel chooses Egypt over God. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Who's going to defend them more? And yet we make Israel stupid. How do they know that? Yet every day is saying we do the exact same thing and putting our confidence, like I said, in things that are so much less powerful, less helpful in this world. Yeah. Amen. Other comments and thoughts on these eight verses? This really did become a shame when, in, uh, as it said in verse 3, when 18, 21, when uh, Assyria is knocking at Jerusalem's door, um, the Assyrian leader, Abshakeh, said, Now behold, he's making fun of him. He said, Now behold, you rely on the staff of the crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. He failed to. He also made fun for relying on God. Um, but at the same time, you know, it did become a shame when. Yeah, I think he was right about the Egypt part. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, Egypt wasn't gonna do a thing. You know, reed doesn't support much. And a broken reed even less. You know, they're not gonna help you. The Lord's the one who has the solid cornerstone foundation you can rely on. See that issue? I mean, we're just constantly in Isaiah. What do you turn to? Where, where's your trust? What do you rely on? Great lessons in this. And I, it's helpful for me to see this. 
as a, a theme. It's helpful for me to see that this theme carries through, that you can really, really see it. You know, these are not just random prophecies. This has a real purpose in the book of Isaiah. Anything else to eight? This was going to take a radical change in their lives. I mean, it wasn't just like, okay, I'll just change my mind from A to B. It was going to require them to make big changes in, in the way they lived, I would imagine. Yes. So it was not just a, oh, well, sure, we'll just change. And More than it is for us. Yeah, and they didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Other thoughts? Alright, 9 to 14. This is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. (laughs) Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the son, they, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore, this iniquity will be on you, like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, and whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces take fire from a heart and scoop water from a cistern. Impressive their attitude, isn't it? Rebellious people who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. They listen to Egypt, not God. So look at their attitude toward the prophets. What, what did they want them to do? Exactly. They, they wanted the preacher's message to suit their own tastes. You know, don't see visions. Don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. I suppose they weren't quite saying it that way. But that's what it meant. You know, they didn't necessarily want Isaiah to quit preaching, but, oh man, you're so negative. So hard and rigid. You know, I mean, it's discouraging. You know, it's just, I mean, you know, we don't want to hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. You just keep talking about, you know, Holy One of Israel and all the stuff that he's telling us we got to do and all the condemnation. You know, they, they didn't want all these preaching about truth and morality and the character of God. They didn't want, didn't, really didn't want Isaiah to just keep bringing God into everything. Can't he preach some things without having to talk about the Lord all the time? And, uh, you know, it has to do with what they maybe feel like they need. You know, I mean, they're living in very stressful times. You know, it's a very, it's a very hard, hard life. They need, they need some comfort. You know, Isaiah just keeps beating them over the head, keeps challenging them, but they need somebody to to understand how they feel and and to give them some encouragement. Sound like today? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, I mean, what God once said isn't necessarily what people want to hear. A lot of times people want to hear something that makes them feel good. (coughs) Isn't that that short-sighted? All I care about is feeling good. Well, I mean... So, so I'm feeling good about a lie. You know, doctor, tell me I don't have cancer. You know, don't you tell me I've got cancer now. Okay? You don't have cancer. So you die three weeks later. Three months later, three years later, whatever. I mean, is that what you tell your doctor? Don't you tell me the truth. You just tell me I'm okay. You want a doctor like that? Probably some for sale. <laughs> I mean, it's so stupid. If it's not the truth, what good does it do to say it? Think about the fact. I mean, what we say doesn't change the truth. 
okay, so I make you, you know, we, we make you feel better. You're happier. Until you die and go to the judgment. It's not going to change the reality. I mean, so Isaiah says, oh, things are fine. Ah, you don't have anything to worry about. Syrian won't even come near. You know, that pact with Egypt, that's solid. <laughs> yeah, just a short time later, the Assyrian invades and the Egyptians stay home. That really help anything just to say what they wanted to hear? The truth is the truth. And we need to preach the truth and want the truth. Whether it pleases us or not. Whether it stresses us out or not. It's the truth that will save us. Comments and thoughts through 11. Okay. I remember exactly where it is, but there's a passage somewhere that says in the New Testament that talks about in the latter days, brethren will have their ears tickled, not enduring some doctrine. Yeah, Second Timothy chapter four, exactly. And I think that reminds me a lot of this passage because they don't want to hear the truth because they don't want to be they don't want to change their lives. Exactly, Dustin. Uh, in Atlanta, there's a church that's probably about the size of like a university. Ish. We have a couple of those, but uh, it's called the World Church. And on this one highway, there's obviously on highways, there's always billboards, and we have a bunch of billboards advertising other churches. And on the billboard, it says the World's Church, a church for people who don't do church. <laughs> and <laughs> I I didn't know what to say to that. It was just. <laughs> What do you say to that? It's a church for people who don't do church. So what do you do there? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. And that every single time I read a passage that's like this, that's exactly what I think of. It's, it's the word for people who don't read the word. It's, it's food for people who don't like to eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. It's coming true, isn't it? They don't want to hear it. Andrew? Um, I think we ourselves can be just like this. Um, I think when we're listening to a sermon, a lot of times um, we hear the things that we're doing or the things that we're not supposed to be doing but not doing them. Um, and then we get the stuff that we're having a hard time with. And, you know, we don't want to listen to that. Um, we kind of block it out. Um, I think when we read stuff like this, you really need to think about how it applies to us. Absolutely. I think we can do very much the same thing. And, you know, how do we respond? When somebody's teaching or preaching something that we don't really like. I mean, you know, I don't know what it is. I mean, what do you... What about when somebody's preaching on um, obedience and honor to parents? <laughs> you know, how's that? <laughs> or somebody's preaching and teaching on uh, the need to teach the gospel to the lost. Or, you know, whatever. The, the importance of purity. You know, I, I uh, know pretty much, I think, for a fact that you know, in a recent time that I was talking to some people about uh, purity and how we deal with people we're dating and so forth, there were at least uh, one or two that, that they didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't. They didn't think that was right. They, uh, you know, somebody said well, that that wasn't very on one of his better classes or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's probably not if that's not what you're doing. I mean. A lot of times it depends on how we are with it. And if it's not what we like, if it's not what we want, then it doesn't make any difference how biblical it is. We don't feel like that. That's one that good. And I'd really like that. You know? I mean, we need to look at it. Is, do we not like it because it wasn't from the Bible? Do we not like it because it really, you know, meant we were doing wrong and we need to change and we don't want to change? Other thoughts? I think verse 11 really just shows their attitude. I mean, they're, they're telling God to just stop. 
I mean, it's this godless, this disrespect, ultimate, you know, uh, it just says, stop, stop talking, God, you know, and uh, that's their attitude. Uh, I don't know, it reminds me of people, especially young people, that make the decision to, to not, well, they don't come out and say, I'm not serving God, but everything that they do shows that, and you'll see them at church or whatever, you know, and you know they're not living right. They know they're not living right, and you confront them or maybe help try to help them, and you know they're not listening, and you, you try and try and try, and eventually you just, they basically just tell you, stop, you know, I'm not going to listen to anything you say or, or anything God says. You know, I made my decision for now, and... Pretty well where Judah was. They'd made their decision. They were rebellious people, sons who refused to listen. So what about us? And look at the consequences. Verse 12, since you rejected this word. In fact, don't you like how he begins verse 12? In the end of verse 11, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not going to stop his preaching, is it? Uh, there, he says, you know, you put your trust in oppression and guile. Therefore, it's going to be like a, a, a bulge in a big wall. And this wall just falls and busts into a zillion pieces. Just almost, you know, just shatters itself to the point there's not even a, a little piece of pottery big enough to hold any water in it. I mean, it's just, it, that's what's going to happen to you. You've not been, you, you, you've not been building up to God's building code. <laughs> and, and, and it's just going to, it's going to fall and burst into smithereens. That's what's going to happen to it. Because when we don't build on the Lord, there is absolutely no stability. There's no foundation. There's no security. There's no hope. If, if You know, I don't care what anybody teaches. If it's not God's word, it may make you feel good. It may make you happy. But if it's not God's word, it's not going to last. I mean, if, if the doctor tells you you don't have cancer, but you do, well, you're going to be dead just the same. It's not going to help. And the problem is, it's going to keep you from getting the treatment that might have cured you. It is a blessing when somebody has guts enough to tell you the truth. What do you do with this? Somebody comes to you and says, I see that you are not doing well with, I don't know, pride? Um, you know, or honesty, or, you know, respect for God, or whatever. How do you take that? I mean, is, do, do, would you appreciate a doctor's courage to tell you the truth? You would think you should. Should you respect a brother's courage for going to you and telling you what the word says? Or do we become resentful? Well, it's none of your business. It's my life. I'll do what I want to. Do you see the parallels, not just with other people, but with us in Judah's attitude here? Comments and questions? We feel the need to point out their problems. <laughs> yeah, who are you to say that to me? Well, you're not perfect either. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like saying to the doctor, well, well, I mean, you, you, you've been sick before, too. <laughs> well, so? Micah? <laughs> uh, as you've been saying, I mean, so many times we want to live according to our own standards, and I'm reminded of Amos's vision of the plumb line and how we want to live according to, we think ourselves are straight, and we need to keep our minds focused on God's word and what his standards are, what, how we ought to measure ourselves up according to him. Amen. Amen. But it is amazing how many people will keep building on that wall even though it's got a huge bulge and it's falling apart and they got that cord with his finger in the dike. And you just keep sticking your fingers in and you got no more fingers and the wall breaks. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, that's that's... It's sad, it's kind of funny, but it, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me how many people, after they've done that, they've used up all their fingers and toes, the dike still breaks, and they go, why did the dike break? <laughs> and it never occurs to them. I don't think that's the, the part of the point that 
that uh, is, I, Isaiah is making here with the children of Israel, they just, their ignorance of God's will for them was so complete that when it did happen, they said, we, why did this happen to us? What did we do wrong? And, uh, I mean, that, that attitude is illustrated as it's in Scripture, but it's just it's kind of amazing how silly people can be. Amen. Shane? There's constant passages in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both about a fool will reject rebuke and a wise man will accept it and learn from it. What are we? Are we, are we wise? Are we going to learn from that? Are we going to have the type of attitude that says, what must I do? And do whatever it takes to do it. Not, not just if it pleases me or if it, if it works with my time schedule. No, it's what must I do? How can I do it? And I'm open to it. Exactly. Caleb. Oh. Other comments? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I just think it's interesting to see the contrast. We look at the bulge in the wall um, and compare it back to, to 28, verse 16. Yes. It talks about the cornerstone. And, and so the cornerstone that God said, when we talked about the, the line and the level. I mean, the line and the level make sure that the wall is built straight and, and that it's not going to bulge and that it's not going to fall down. And so here they built this wall. And it's a wall built on iniquity. It's not, not on righteousness and truth. And so it it's able to bulge and it's going to collapse and there isn't going to be anything. Amen. Alright. Other comments and questions? Yes. Are we to be as blunt as the prophets when we correct people? I mean, because they are really harsh and very blunt. I mean, and that, I don't know. I mean, I just see how a lot of people would be very offended if you go to them and say some of the things that their prophets said to Israel. It's interesting, isn't it, Sadie? Well, I think one thing that this, these days have me see, it, you know, when you looked at, like, First uh, Thessalonians 5, you know, you, you take different approaches, you have different amounts of salt, as it were, in the grace season of salt, your, yeah, sorry, your speech season of salt, and it may be have a lot of salt with some people because they need encouragement more, some people little because they really need a rebuke. But it's still the truth. You're still talking to them about it. You're still addressing the problem. And, I mean, Isaiah's that way. And sometimes he's very hopeful that after this, you know, once you repent, here's, here's the hope. But he's still addressing the problem. He's still not avoiding it. Uh, and so we might need salt more and more, different amounts, I guess, in different situations. But he's at least having the courage to address it. Yes. Chris. I think the harder part with that is being on the receiving end and realizing that the deliverer may not know how much salt to put on it. You know, when you receive the, the whatever it is, try to look and see if there's any truth to it rather than, man, you did a terrible job of telling me what I was doing wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't worry about how the doctor told you you had cancer. You got cancer, you got cancer. You know, Larry. It depends on the situation. Sometimes you have to be blunt and be like the prophets. And sometimes you have to be tactful, especially with uh, a weaker brother, or depending on the situation. Yeah, I would go back to the end of 28, not one size fits all, Jude 22 and 23. But our problem is probably more not being blunt where we should be. And we cannot compromise the truth. We may be able to say it in various tones of voice, but we can't, we can't say, well, maybe it's not cancer when the Bible says it is. Michael. Another thing is just what Jesus did. Uh, you know, he would, he would call the Pharisees you know, pretty bad names, but uh, turn around and eat with those people, hopefully sinners in other ways, not maybe hypocrites and leading people astray. Uh, but even he dealt with people differently. And we learn from the early chapters of John that's probably because he knew the hearts of men. He knew which hearts were not going to listen to God anyway. Uh, and he was very bold about how he talked to them. But those who he knew had the opportunity and the desire uh, for something more than this life you be more compassionate on them. Sometimes we don't know uh, where a person is because we don't know the hearts of men. Um, but those are still the right principles to use. Yeah, and I don't know, this just makes sense to me, I don't, I don't know why I say this, but it's like the doctor who uh, 
would give some diagnosis and say there are eight ways to fix this possible problem. And you know, we don't want to use number eight if we don't have to. Uh, you know, that's a last resort. And until you find out where a person is, uh, maybe you shouldn't just go all out. Uh, you should get to know their situation and, uh, and where they are and try to pinpoint what may be the best for that situation. Not too easy and not too hard, but you have to get to know them. Figure out what the plan is when you go to harvest it to figure out how you get the seed out. Yeah. I agree. And uh, good comments. Other thoughts? I think it's interesting that Isaiah is doing a good job with what he was commissioned to do in chapter 6 to make sure they didn't listen. I agree. All right, why don't we uh, take our uh, food break here. Really good discussion. You do see why I say 30 is a really good chapter? And we're not done with the really good parts of it. Uh, hopefully you can stay for those. Uh, but we're going to uh, enjoy Evelyn's bean soup here. And uh, hopefully...